welcome to the Grok Science Show. I'm Joanna Rowell. And I'm Faris Gordon. We're joined today in studio by Dr. Dario Mastripieri. Dr. Mastripieri is Professor of Comparative Human Development, Evolutionary Biology, Neurobiology, and Psychiatry, and Behavioral Neuroscience at the University of Chicago. He's also the author of the book, Machiavellian Intelligence, How Rhesus Macaques and Humans Conquered the World. Today he joins us to discuss his new book, Games Primates Play, an undercover investigation of the evolution and, and economics of human relationships. Dr. Mestre Pieri, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start off by explaining one of my favorite sketches from Saturday Night Live. Uh, David Schwimmer is the host. He's starting a new job or something like that. He's in an office building and he gets in an elevator and the first thing that happens is, you know, it's an elevator. He, other people get in, it's in an office building, it's crowded. And the people coming to join him in the elevator just crowd right next to him, just really uncomfortably, and he's obviously uncomfortable. And they leave, and the next people come in, and they just stand facing the back wall of the elevator. And it's person after person with just hideous, misappropriate elevator behavior. And reading your book, you make the very good point that how we be actually behave in an elevator isn't that far removed from what happened in that Saturday Night Live sketch. Yeah, I wish I had seen that uh, sketch before so I would have talked about it in my book. Uh, I had the idea of writing this book uh, from uh, writing in an elevator for, for a year. I lived in a high-rise building in uh, South Loop, Chicago, and uh, there were many apartments in the building every day. I met a different person, and I couldn't help but notice how uh, awkward people behave in an elevator. And being a biologist, I tried to come up with an explanation for that. What is odd about pe people's behavior in elevators? So when, when you meet a stranger in an elevator, you first you try to avoid making uh, direct eye-to-eye -eye contact with this person. You also uh, try to uh, stand and not make any movements. You try not to sing or uh, say anything silly. Uh, and this might strike you as just simply uh, awkward behavior, but, but in fact, uh, it's, it's behaviors that, uh, 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 whose function is to reduce the possible risk of aggression. If you put two monkeys in a cage, they do exactly the same thing. They try to avoid eye-to-eye -eye contact, they try not to move, they try to act indifferent. So th are these macaques, are these chimpanzees, is it universal among pr non-human primates? Well, there are, there are some species uh, that live in uh, complex social societies, such as, uh, su like humans, and uh, I studied macaques, and uh, this was my first experiment I conducted as a student. I tested pairs of monkeys who had not met before in a small cage, and what I, see, what, what I saw was a lot of uh, elevator behavior. So there are similarities between how we might act and, and a macaque. There's the avoiding eye contact, there's the willingness to smile. You describe in your book if eye contact is made there's remaining stationary and trying not to provoke any uncomfortable interactions. All that's similar between macaques in an enclosed space and humans in an elevator. But you, you describe in your book that macaques act the way they do, partly because they're afraid of starting a fight. When I'm in an elevator, I don't expect Joanna or you to beat me up for any reason. Why do I still act, act nervous or, or retain these behaviors? Because uh, your mind unconsciously uh, registers that there is, uh, there is a risk of aggression. Essentially, it's not the elevator in itself. Obviously, the elevator is a relatively new invention. But uh, being alone with a stranger in a, in a small uh, space uh, is, is not a new situation. So humans have probably found themselves in similar situations for, for millions of years and, and, and our primate ancestors before that. So we have uh, uh, unconscious responses that we show in these situations. So nothing happens consciously. Obviously there's no risk that somebody will attack you. But uh, people react to uh, being in close proximity to a stranger 
and they automatically take precautions, take measures to reduce uh, possible risk of aggression. So something similar happens when we write emails. Um, so what are the rules that determine who begins an email exchange between two people, who writes short messages, who writes long ones, who replies quickly, and how does this mirror um, the behaviors of, of rhesus monkeys? Well, human beings evolved to uh, have relationships with, with other people that they, that they uh, see, that they can hear, that they can touch. So for millions of years, essentially, we interacted with people face to face. So I, I, I was wondering a while ago whether the fact that we now these days maintain our social relationships uh, almost entirely over email or Facebook or other social media, whether this has changed in some fundamental way, the way uh, our relationships work. And then I started thinking about the way emails are exchanged and realized that, in fact, we can detect some of the dynamics uh, uh, that are characteristics of all other relationships, even in the way we use email. So you mentioned that there is a pattern in who starts an email exchange, who replies, how long, whether the, the replies are long or short. I mean, essentially, you can, you can, you can think that uh, the difference in social status between the two people, so who's dominant and who's subordinate, will affect the pattern of email exchange. So typically, the person who's lower in status will begin the email exchange first by sending a long email to the other. The other will usually wait a while, then write a shorter email, and this will they go on back and forth, uh, where the low-status individual writes quick and long emails, the dominant writes slow, more slow, uh, slower emails and shorter ones, and eventually the dominant person will end uh, the exchange. So this has to do with uh, different costs and benefits. Essentially, the low-status individual has more to gain, the dominant has more to lose, and it's exactly the same as what you would see in an exchange of grooming between two primates, two chimpanzees, or two rhesus monkeys. So I wanted to talk a little bit about love. And you have a couple of chapters in your book about this subject. And I was just wondering, what can economists and evolutionary biologists tell us about love, and why is it a business solution? So I study uh, other primates, but and, and there are species uh, in which males and females form long-term uh, uh, relationships uh, in which uh, they uh, have children together, they raise them. But I think that the that, that love is a unique uh, emotion to humans, that, that we don't find anything uh, similar to love in other primates. So the question is why? Why is it that romantic love evolved in humans? And uh, an economist, uh, his name is Bob Frank, he's a professor at Cornell and writes a, a column for the Wall Street Journal, years ago wrote a book called uh, uh, Passions Within Reason, um, in which he essentially developed uh, an evolutionary theory of, of emotions, uh, which is in part based on economics and in part on biology. And he has essentially explained the evolution of love as, as a solution uh, to the problem that many cooperative relationships uh, present. And he called this the commitment problem. The fact that uh, when two people get together, initially uh, they both have uh, a lot to gain from their relationship and little to lose. But after a while, things change and things might become uh, uh, disadvantageous for one of the two individuals and those individuals might be tempted to end the relationship or to start cheating. So what, what, what keeps people together in spite of these changes in benefits and costs? So Frank argued that the love existed to solve this commitment problem, that we need this irrational force to keep people together regardless of uh, what's advantageous and what's not. And in my book, I actually provide a different solution. I, think, I don't think that love actually evolved to be a solution to the commitment problem. So, so what is your solution? I think that love, uh, to understand the function of love, uh, we have to think about the function of emotions in general. I mm -hmm. think uh, one important function of emotions is to energize motivation. 
uh, when we have a strong emotional state, we want to do something or we don't want to do something. So for example, negative emotions such as fear or anxiety, uh, make sure that we don't do things that are maybe dangerous to ourselves or, or too risky. Mm -hmm. So I think that love energizes our motivation when it comes to our desire to be with somebody. So lo love, I think, evolved to, uh, to bring people together, essentially, two members of the opposite sex, to motivate them to stay together, to reproduce, and to stay together long enough to uh, raise at least one child or more successfully. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if that's really romantic or not, but it sounds great. <laughs> Another chapter in your book talks about the recommendation system used in Italy when you were a young man, uh, but it used to place individuals, including yourself, into military positions and graduate school. It sounds terrifying. It is, uh, and unfortunately there are uh, thousands of young Italians who have to deal with, uh, with nepotism uh, in schools and colleges, academia, and many of them are forced to leave the country and, and look for jobs abroad. This is still currently a similar system running now? Yes, absolutely. It's very current. So in a chapter of my book, about, I talk about nepotism. And, and what I say is that nepotism is, is a biological phenomenon. It's almost universal. Uh, it's common in many animal species. Uh, from a biological perspective, nepotism simply means uh, uh, behaving ways that favor your family members at the expense of non-relatives. So we see this in all animal species. Uh, but what, what's unique to humans is that when people behave nepotistically to help their family members, inevitably they end up breaking some rules. So they could break uh, uh, societal rules, moral rules, laws, and in some cases they end up committing crimes. So even though in nature nepot nepotism is neither good nor bad, because in nature there is no morality, there's no right or wrong, in humans when people behave nepotistically it tends to be pretty bad. <laughs> Yeah, you had uh, a couple lines from your book that I just loved, uh, pretty much you just sort of stated that one of the big differences between macaques and humans is that in humans we have social contracts and that if everyone plays by the rules, nepotism isn't a successful strategy. Is that why we get so outraged when we see some examples of nepotism? Yes, nepotism has uh, uh, serious consequences for, for, uh, for the victims of this phenomenon. So uh, if you don't have the right connections and you are in a business in which connections essentially are everything, uh, you will pay a very high price for, for being the victim of, of nepotism. And so it's an important phenomenon and it tends to be more prevalent, more common when, when resources are scarce. So if there's a lot of money for everybody, if there's a lot of jobs, then uh, uh, people don't have the need, don't feel the need to behave nepotistically. But uh, uh, when there's less money and when jobs are fewer, then people tend to, uh, tend to favor their relatives or protégés, and that's when nepotism becomes more dangerous. So despite the system in Italy, you made it to graduate school and you're now a professor. But I can imagine that you're probably the exception and not the rule. And I was just wondering, is it, is it fair to say that the recommendation system in place in Italy is not of the greatest benefit to society? Absolutely, absolutely not. Yet it's not beneficial at all. It's very detrimental to, to, to society. In fact, uh, Italy has paid a, a, a price for, for having a, a university system, an educational system that is highly nepotistic. All the, the, best, uh, the best people end up leaving the country. So in many areas of, of science and academia, uh, Italy is, uh, is now where it could be if we had retained uh, all these uh, people. Essentially, all the best people end up leaving the country. Is it getting better in Italy, in the U.S., in the world? Is this dying out at all, or is it just persisting or getting worse? Uh, as I said, it depends on, uh, on the availability of resources. So if a country 
is rich and there's a lot of jobs and there is uh, wealth for everybody the way the situation was in the United States uh, after World War II where many new jobs were created where the economy was going strong then uh, the United States were really the land of opportunity and nepotism was not a serious concern but now with the economic crisis with overpopulation when societies uh, society becoming more and more competitive uh, nepotism has become uh, an issue of concern also in the United States. I talk about it in my book about the baby boomers mm -hmm. and the fact that so much wealth and power right now is concentrated in, in the hands of, of people in their 60s and 70s and right at this time their children are essentially entering uh, uh, the workplace and so it's a situation that unfortunately is, is ripe for nepotism. So let's get back to the Reese's McHacks. So we've been talking about the recommendation in uh, system in Italy. How does this relate to how non-human primates behave with kin direct altruism? So nepotism, as I said, is, is, is common to many other uh, animal species. I'll, I'll use as an example the rhesus monkey because I happen to study these primates. They're highly nepotistic uh, species. Uh, they live in uh, uh, matriarchal, matrilineal uh, societies in which uh, females tend to spend their entire life in the group in which they're born whereas males leave their group at puberty and migrate into a new group. Uh, in these uh, monkey groups, there is uh, very strict dominance hierarchies, and young monkeys essentially inherit the social rank, the dominance rank of their mothers. And this uh, occurs through uh, nepotistic aid, so that every time a young monkey gets into a fight with another young monkey, uh, both mothers will intervene on behalf of their offspring, but the higher ranking mother obviously will win the fight. And as a result, uh, uh, the offspring of the higher ranking mother will win the fight. And when this is repeated many times, essentially this has the consequence that young monkeys inherit uh, the rank of their mother. So young monkeys born to high ranking mothers will become high ranking for all their lives if they're females. And those who are born uh, to females at the bottom of the hierarchy, unfortunately, will become losers for life. Does the system work for macaques? I mean, for individuals in the group, it seems like it works, but are there does it work for everybody, or are there winners and losers? Well, there are winners and losers in every animal society, in every species. Yeah. Uh, but there's nothing morally wrong with, with uh, being a winner or a loser. So, uh, yeah, uh, in, in systems that are hierarchical, there are individuals who are at the uh, top of the hierarchies and those that are at the bottom. Sometimes being at the top or at the bottom can make the difference between uh, life or death. In most cases, it makes a difference between having a good life and a bad life. Well, to change gears a little bit, I wanted to ask you, why was it common for two men in ancient Rome to hold each other's testicles while making a pledge of alliance, which became the basis for the word testify? Right. So the idea is that uh, uh, testicles are very valuable but also vulnerable mm -hmm. parts of a man's body. Mm -hmm. And so you wouldn't uh, want a man that you don't know well or you don't trust to... Uh, to engage in such an intimate and potentially risky uh, behavior. So um, uh, so the Romans did not invent this ritual. Uh, two male baboons who have uh, an agonistic alliance, who help each other against other male baboons, frequently have to assess the strength of their alliance. So they need to know whether uh, the other baboon is still committed to this relationship, whether they can count on him uh, for help in the future. So what they do is that they get together and they briefly fondle each other's genitalia. So the idea, uh, there's a theory in biology that explains this behavior, is that uh, the best way to assess how much an individual values a relationship is to see what price this individual is willing to pay. 
So the idea is that you behave in ways that are risky, that are potentially dangerous, sometimes just um, annoying or stressful, and see what reaction you get. If you get tolerance and patience, it means you're on good terms with this individual. If you get aggression, it means that the relationship has changed and you have to be more careful. And that sounds like a great way to see if there's any aggression going on. Right, exactly. In your, in your book, you mentioned that there's a disconnect between the intellectual or spiritual achievements of individuals like, say, Picasso or Mother Teresa, and the content and quality of their social lives. Why do you think this is, and how does this, again, relate back to the animal kingdom? So human beings have uh, very large brains compared to uh, other animals, and, and including other primates. So obviously, having a uh, a large brain is like having a very powerful computer. There's all kinds of things that you can do with it. So our big brains allow us to, uh, uh, to, to engage in abstract thinking, allow us to use uh, language, to, uh, to, uh, to have religion, spirituality, so art, all these things that other animals are not capable of. But the question is, do we use all these complex cognitive skills all the time, even in dealing with uh, everyday problems? And the answer is, I don't think so, because in our social lives, in our social relationships, we deal with problems that are not a recent uh, uh, invention, and not a recent event. So uh, some of the problems that we, deal, that we deal, with, deal with have been around for millions of years. So other primates uh, deal with the same problems, and the solutions that we have to these problems are not nothing new. So in, in many cases, we uh, all tend to use similar behaviors, uh, similar tendency to behave in similar situations that we inherited from other primates. Mm -hmm. So we can be geniuses, we can be highly intellectual, we can artists, but when we deal with social problems, we resemble our cousins, other primates. Should we use more brains when we deal with these problems? I mean, it seems like whether you're talking about nepotism or our behaviors in elevators or with testicles, We've taken a good idea ingrained in our evolutionary history and used our what self-awareness we have to make that idea sometimes too ridiculous or counterproductive extremes. Is that a fair way to put it, and what should we do about this? Well, so the idea is that uh, it's expensive. Even though we have the, the ability to use uh, complex uh, cognitive skills, uh, we have the ability, in theory, to analyze in a very complex way every situation that we find ourselves to. It's expensive to, to use these complex uh, cognitive processes. Uh, natural selections tend to favor uh, processes that tend to save uh, uh, energy or other resources. So to deal with many problems that arise in everyday social situation, we don't need these expensive, energetically costly uh, cognitive processes. We have solutions that are cheaper, that are easier to use. With. So in many cases, our, our brains simply operate on automatic pilot. Do you think um, our obsession with celebrity gossip has to do with our primate-like social? Uh, definitely our interest in gossip <laughs> is, is something that has a biological basis. Uh, gossip serves a very important social function. Gossip is a way through which we uh, gather information about other individuals. So it would be very difficult, if not impossible, to gather information about many other individuals directly by directly interacting with each one of these people. So, but we need to know about other, other, other people because these people could be potentially our future romantic partners or future business partners. And it's just uh, too time consuming, too difficult to individually monitor and test and, and, 
and interrogate these individuals. So gossip essentially spreads information around. Mm -hmm. So through gossip, we find out who's faithful and who cheats in personal relationship, who could be a good business partner and who would not be. So it's a very important social function. So it's uh, getting to be time to play our Grokatron 5000 game. So our show's supercomputer, Grokatron 5000, previously known as Deep Blue, has a few questions for you. So let's say you're stuck in an elevator with one of the following five people. Do you think that they'll smile at you pleasantly or will they silently ponder attacking you or both? So the first person, Oprah. She'll smile at me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she does seem like a smiler. Yeah. Yes. All right, this is a little different. How about actor Charlie Sheen? Oh, he would stare me down, I think. He would <laughs> definitely try to pick a fight with me, but I would react to him the way I, I react to a, to a male Reese's monkey who's trying to pick a fight with me. I would be indifferent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so do the, the, the Reese's monkeys work? you work with? Do they try to pick fights with you? Sometimes males do do try and, and test uh, the, the limits of their <laughs> uh, power with, with a human being. So they, they try and, and provoke me. They, they, they'll look at me and try to make eye contact and they stare me a little bit. Uh, uh, they can tell whether, whether people are afraid uh, of monkeys and, and if they feel that, that the person is afraid, they'll try and take advantage of the situation and be more aggressive. So the trick is to not show your emotions? Or even to fake uh, emotions. Mm -hmm. So if you're uh, worried about a monkey attacking you, and, and you should be because these monkeys can be dangerous, you cannot show that you're afraid or concerned. So you have to bluff sometimes and you have to threaten the monkeys and make a loud noise or uh, uh, essentially uh, let the monkeys think that you're ready to attack. Then the monkey will be scared. If I ever meet Charlie Sheen, I know what to do. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Good for you. <laughs> All right, so getting back to smile or attack, how about British primatologist Jane Goodall? I think that she would probably just start talking with me and we would have, <laughs> a, have a nice conversation. She, she knows the, the primate ways, and so we would just have a nice uh, uh, grooming interaction, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, golfer Tiger Woods. Interesting. I hope that uh, <laughs> I hope that he'll start talking and maybe start sharing some stories. Uh, <laughs> I imagine he has a lot of them. I'm sure he does. Mm -hmm. And finally, politician Newt Gingrich. I would definitely stare him down. I would definitely look him in the eye and, and sort of think, uh, do you know what you're doing? Are you really doing this? <laughs> he might be good at bluffing back, though. I get a feeling oh, there's I'm a sure. lot of uh, bluster and bluffing. Oh, he's a great primate. Yeah, he, he, he would know what to do. <laughs> All right. So thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. The book is Games Primates Play, an undercover investigation of the evolution and economics of human relationships. It's on sale now. If uh, you're in the Chicago area listening to us, you can find signed copies in the bookstore on campus and at 57th Street Books. Uh, thank you again. Thank you. I guess that's it for the show today. So if you're interested in hearing more from us, you can find our website by Googling The Grok Science Show. The Grok Science Radio Show is also on Facebook and Twitter, so look for us there. And if you want to pursue a social interaction in email form, you can email us at science at groks.net. So thanks for listening to us today. And if you email us, tweet us, or post to us on Facebook or our website, we'd love to listen to you. For the Grok Science Radio Show and Elise Kovic, Frank Ling, Charles Lee, and Forrest Golden, who's right here. Hi. I'm Joanna Rowell. 